Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host, Zach Griffiths, Senior Investment Grade Strategist here at Credit Sites. And joining me today is Zerlina Zhang, our Senior Analyst covering China Macro. Zerlina, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Zach, for having me. All right. So I feel like China has been in the headlines recently with the recent Politburo meeting and kind of the developments in the property market have certainly remained relevant. And so I think one of the big questions that we have been getting is how much more can the Chinese government do in terms of fiscal policy to kind of address some of the economic challenges facing the country? Yeah, I think stimulus is one of the biggest topics for China macro lately among our credit investors. So as a health view, we still expect ongoing targeted consumption support measures over the rest of the year and into 2024, but a large-scale fiscal stimulus, which is uh, highly anticipated by the market, we think it's unlikely. So the state council has extended some of the tax breaks for electric vehicle purchases and also to high-end manufacturers, and the government also rolled out some of the cash handouts in rural areas and consumption subsidies for home appliance purchases. But we think overall, the fiscal stimulus are very much in a piecemeal fashion. We think there are still very high hurdles for any big bank stimulus measures as the local government fiscal conditions were hit very hard by three years of this COVID lockdown. And the central government um, is still very cautious about local government debt risk. As you mentioned, I think the recent July Politburo meeting the central government has adopted a relatively softer stance towards the sector because of this increasing macro headwinds and the prolonged property downturn. But the central government is still very much cautious about cleaning up and curbing the LGIV debt. And we think it is very much unclear when and how the central government will really roll out any concrete support measures for the LGIV sector. I think lastly, it is also worth noting that the Chinese policymakers are still relatively comfortable with the around 5% growth target. So if you look at the policy wordings from the central economic and Politburo meetings over the past couple of years, the central government has really focused on the quality of growth rather than any numerical target. And so thinking about the quality of growth, what are they really looking for in terms of making that distinction between quality and poor quality, I suppose. I think one of them is the policymakers really think in the past few years, the explosive growth of the China property sector is not sustainable in the longer term. They think it is still right for them to deliver the sector over the past few years. But of course, they are now acknowledging the challenges faced by the property sector 
And uh, in a recent Politburo, they really deleted the whole sub health mantra that housing is for a living, not not for speculation. But that said, I don't think the policymakers are really changing their stance on the property sector. They still think this is the right thing to do over the long term, especially given the demographics of the Chinese population has really changed over the past few years. We don't no longer need that many new houses over the next 10 years. So as a result, the policymakers also want to reduce the supply of the houses. I think the other point to note is the policymakers um, still reiterate the strong support for the privately owned enterprises. So they think this is the sector could help with the innovation and sustainable long-term growth for the Chinese economy. So the policymakers are still pushing for regulatory support, such as the internet platforms. They are promoting some of the stable and healthy capital markets. They also want to stabilize foreign investment and trade. Um, but um, the conversations with a lot of onshore market participants, I think market skepticism has been very high just due to the lack of concrete follow-through measures by the government. And as a result, the market impact of a lot of these positive policy rhetoric has become um, increasingly limited. So just thinking about the July Politburo meeting as a whole, is there anything else we didn't cover that seems like we've kind of hit some of the, the core things, but is there anything else you want to highlight from that in terms of how it affects your view for China macro and corporates in the area? I think another big question is really still surrounded around the China property sector. And I think as a house view, we continue to question you know, the timing, scale, and effectiveness of a lot of the property support measures. Um, the July Politburo meeting, um, there are a lot of uh, policy wording centered around encouraging local government to continue to ease property policy based on local conditions. But we know this has happened in the past 12 months. But we don't see more, much um, positive impact on the end home demand. There is a lot of wording about promoting the redevelopment of urban villages. But this is very different from what we had experienced in 2015 to 2018. And it is not going to be very much inflationary for the sector. There are some of the additional property easing measures anticipated by markets, such as uh, removing home purchase restrictions in top tier cities. But we still think this might even crowd out some of the demand in lower tier cities. There are some um, guidance on lowering the interest rate of existing mortgages, but the limitation is the bank's balance sheet is not really as strong as in before the COVID pandemic. And uh, in that interest margin has also declined quite a bit. So overall, I think the market should be a bit rational in terms of, you know, the scale and effectiveness of all these property support measures. And so thinking about what the government can do or perhaps will do, what sectors do you expect them to target in terms of policy adjustments? And I think you might have outlined this a little bit at the outset, but if you could kind of touch on that in a little bit more detail. Well, I think mainly two to three areas. The first big area is about electric vehicle. The government has rolled out a lot of consumption stimulus measures. It is also not just from the central government, but also on the local levels, mainly consumption coupons and also the nationwide delayed tax holiday, the ending of the tax holiday by another one to two years. And other than that, there has been a lot of local government money flowing through EV-related infrastructure, such as the charging station. So this is really one big area. Second area is about consumption in the rural areas. It's also part of China's goal in terms of common prosperity. 
So over the past few months, uh, we have seen a large scale of stimulus rolled out towards the purchase of home appliances and autos in the rural sector. Our third area is an ongoing uh, renewable energy related development. It is also in line with China's uh, carbon uh, neutral policy and their green transition. The main areas um, include the pump storage, the upgrade of the grid lines, as well as some of the renewable and optional way and solar panels. So these are likely to be the sectors that will benefit quite a bit um, in terms of the government's targeted policy adjustment. So thinking about those targeted industries or areas of the economy, are there any specific credits that stand to benefit or that you're focused on perhaps with respect to the electric vehicle stimulus or any other aspects of the fiscal policy you're expecting? Yeah, we do. I think China Tech is the sector that we like quite a bit since early last year for a few reasons. The first one is the policy stance toward the sector has softened quite a bit over the past 12 to 24 months from a very heavy-handed tech crackdown to more uh, friendly and supportive measures. There has been a lot of signals sending out by the central government in terms of um, their turning more friendly to the big tech platforms such as Tencent and Alibaba. They're bringing back the DD Global. So all these are policy tailwinds for the sector. And we like the any rated China tech dollar bonds such as Alibaba and Tencent, which were some of the triple B rated names such as Meituan and Lenovo. We also like them um, for trading the potential upside of China macro. The other sector we like is, as you mentioned, related to the electric vehicle. We like GV Auto. So this company has been very active in the electric vehicle space. Um, EV has become an increasingly higher proportion in terms of its total auto sales. And we like its dollar perp. We think it'll be cold. And we think the spread is now still trading at a quite attractive level. So you mentioned that some of those picks that you have or focuses that you have are a good way to capture potential upside from a China macro perspective. Just taking a step back, what what is your outlook in terms of the macro picture broadly? Do, do you think that we're in for more of a recovery or have the positive rhetoric and, and kind of lack of action so far? Is that blunting the, the impact or perhaps intended impact of government communication recently? I think in terms of outview, our expectation for the four-year China real GDP growth has always been below market consensus. I recall from the start of the year, the market consensus for this year's growth was around 6%, but our view is around 5%. I think right now the market is really revising. There are too high expectations for the first half of the year, and now we are coming down to a more rational level, which is around 5%. So for us, the development in the first half of the year, I would say, was roughly in line. And this is an uneven post-COVID recovery with services and the tech sector leading the other discretionary-related retail spending. So moving into the second half of the year, we still maintain our view. We are going to see pockets of opportunities or pockets of growth within the Chinese economy um, related to the EV and uh, some of the online discretionary good sales, as well as the renewable energy-related areas. Uh, we are still going to see some of uneven recovery, especially for the absence factor, as we could see the industrial production slowing down because of the commodity prices moderating. And um, I think the property sector is still going to be a huge drag on the Chinese economy, not only this year, but uh, likely over the next three to five years. 
I think for a lot of the credit investors, the focus should not just be in terms of the short-term growth, what is the real GDP growth number in 2024 and 2025, but more in terms of some of the long-term challenges facing the Chinese economy, one being the elevated local government debt, and second is a lot of the banking asset quality issues as well as how the Chinese government is going to address the more SOE-driven um, economy. So this boils down to the bottom line question for investor is how much long-term Chinese risk asset you want to take in your portfolio. And some of these uh, long-term retail risk might be hard to price or hedge. That's extremely helpful in thinking about what's going to drive markets and how you're thinking about positioning a portfolio in terms of China credit. And is, you mentioned banking asset quality issues. Is that really also stemming from the property sector or are there other pain points that you're focused on there that you're highlighting the clients? Yeah, I think one big area of focus of the market and also for us is the property sector because the banking sector's exposure to property sector is multidimensional. The first one is being the property sector project loans or construction loans. To some extent, the risk is still not very high because a lot of this is secured against relatively high quality assets. And if you compare the bank loans to the property sector with the offshore dollar bonds or even some of the onshore dollar bonds, in terms of a payment waterfall, this is a still a superior to the bond uh, holders. And um, the other factor of the exposure is uh, the related to wealth management product. This is not on the balance sheet of the Chinese bank, but uh, carried out by some of the wealth management arms of the Chinese bank. So this is not really a balance sheet a related a non-performing loan that type of exposure, but more like a reputational risk. Um, but this is also an area um, that investors should pay some attention to. I think our banking team's view is really the large banks, especially the state-owned ones and the joint stock banks. Their asset quality is still relatively better and their capital buffer is adequate. So we are not so concerned of these banks. Uh, but the pain point is coming from the rural commercial banks and city rural commercial banks that because their capital adequacy rate, ratio is already weaker than the larger ones. Over the past few years, the local government has punished their capital to the issuance of special purpose local government bonds. But because of the constraint fiscal condition of the local government, I think the scale that they could extend additional help to the sector is quite limited. I think the other areas the market participants are quite concerned about is the banking sector's exposure to the local government financing vehicles. I think that's at how few we are still not so concerned. Because overall, the local governments are still getting quite strong willingness to support from the local government. So far, they are rolling over some of the loans in weak provinces. The large majority of the stronger provinces, the loans are still getting paid by the local government financing vehicles. Interesting. So that's certainly a multifaceted concern, and that's kind of helpful to lay out where, where the pain points are and, and perhaps where the more resilient banks and in which sectors they're in. So shifting gears a bit, what are your expectations for monetary policy from the PBOC going forward? I feel compared to fiscal policy, as well as the property easing measures, uh, the monetary policy easing as the low hanging fruit for the Chinese policymakers. For the second half of the year, we still expect the PBOC to cut bank reserve requirements or another policy rate depends on the data. The other area of support is the policy banks extending more loans to targeted sectors. 
such as the construction were pre-sold but incomplete homes, SMEs, as well as the agriculture sector. But I think the market should focus on whether the additional monetary support measures could translate into credit demand, given right now the consumer and business confidence has been very much muted. And so you'll have to excuse my ignorance here, but how does that work? How do the policy banks work in terms of being directed to extend more loans to, to various sectors? That sounds a little bit different than some of the standard monetary policy we have in the U.S. at least. Yeah, so this is almost like a quasi-monetary quantitative easing carried out by the PBOC. Basically, the policy bank extend some cheap loans to the major commercial banks and those commercial banks will use the cheap loans to own land or to the construction sector or to the SMEs and agriculture sector. So they call this as a special purpose lending from the policy bank. Over the past decade, the policy banks have been used to support a lot of sectors and LGIV being one. So in the past, some of the weak LGIVs were actually bailed out by the policy bank especially if they're in charge of critical infrastructure, such as expressways. Again, um, last year, the case was for the property sector. The policy banks extended these cheap loans to those developers who need to complete those pre-sold but incomplete homes. Interesting. So it sounds a little bit more like the ECB's TLTROs that they had done over the past few years. And so I guess kind of thinking about all of these potential changes, I think one of the things that came up in your recent conference in Asia is, is the labor market there and, and how that's going to factor into policy decisions. Are we seeing any improvement in the labor market? And if so, do you expect that to continue? And, and if not, do you think that that's indicative of more underlying weakness there? So for China, the overall urban unemployment rate has remained quite flat at 5.2%, and this is also largely in line with the consensus forecast. The major issue here is the youth unemployment rate. This is a rate for those between 16 and 24 years old. So this youth unemployment rate has increased to 21.3% from 20% in May. So this is a new high since 2018, I believe. I think there were many reasons behind it high youth unemployment rate. One is being cyclical. So the new graduation season has started around summertime this year, but hiring from privately owned enterprises and SMEs is uh, very subdued because the economy right now is very small. The other reason is more structural. So the large proportion of new graduates over the past few years, they major in information technology, education, and finance. But hiring from these sectors has basically stopped because of the heavy-handed crackdown of the tech sector this year. And then also uh, the financial sector was under a lot of uh, regulatory pressure this year. I think restoring the confidence of privately owned enterprises uh, for hiring additional headcounts will likely take time. There are a lot the government need to do in terms of, you know, first is leveling the playing field of privately owned enterprises against the SOEs protecting the entrepreneur's rights and establishing a more predictable and better communicated regulatory framework for the tech platform. The other area they need to do is aligning the vocational training and the college studies to the new business need. And this is likely will going to take 
another two to three years time at least. So it seems like it's going to be a bit of a long slog to get a big improvement, at least in the, the youth unemployment rate, which that's certainly a concerning structural situation, I think, in China for sure. And so I, I think that kind of gets to the last question I wanted to ask, and I feel like this is a, a big hot button topic. How do you think about the risk of a so-called Japanification of China? Yeah, I think that this risk is uh, quite real because if we compare the Chinese economy now against the economy back then for Japan, there are many similarities. The first is about the rapid surge of land prices over the past decade and then the sudden tumbling of land prices over a very short period of time over the last few years. Second one is about the accumulation of bad assets within the system. A lot of the property developers are still undergoing the debt restructuring, and this is going to take a very long time. Third one is about the business confidence. I mean, corporate investment appetite has really weakened over the past three years because of COVID, but also a knock-on impact of the property downturn. The capital market sentiment has also weakened quite a bit. And the other risk is about deflation. Uh, because of the uh, high base of energy and food, uh, food prices in 2021 and 2022, right now China is facing an increase in deflationary pressure. And uh, the last point is about, we just discussed the elevated youth unemployment and the erosion of household expectation of future wealth and income. So I think the risk is real, but the difference here is I think the Chinese policymakers do have many tools to you know, reverse this trend or stop the economy from going to the uh, route that Japan has gone through. A few things that they could do, I think the first one is a more broad-based property easing measures to significantly dial back some of the tax stance against the sector and to turn around household expectation for home prices. Some of the things they could do is uh, lowering rates for existing home mortgages. They could remove home purchase restrictions nationwide. They could also rule out some of the large-scale shantytown reconstruction. And the other thing the government should be doing, which I think they're a bit reluctant to do, is cleaning up the bad assets related to the property sector. I think the government needs to uh, do more bold measures in terms of uh, mobilizing the policy and the commercial bank's balance sheet, or even to set up a new asset management company to show up some of the uh, funding for developers that have been defaulted. And they also need to speed up the debt restructuring process of the defaulted developers. And the other thing the government has been doing uh, is expanding their balance sheet while the household and corporate sectors are delivering. They have been issuing quite a lot of special purpose and um, local government bonds. They're also um, thinking about upsizing the quota of local government bonds and further loosening regulations of, over the LGIV debt. Um, but the question here is still uh, highly uncertain. Even if these measures are rolled out, are likely going to take quite a long time. Um, the other measures uh, is related to boosting consumption. I think some of the provincial governments are already doing kind of urban um, populations, also to the rural population. Uh, but the fiscal constraint is another challenge for a lot of the local government. So overall, th there are many easy measures already on the way especially for property, LGLEs, and consumption, this should uh, marginally support the growth and reduce some of the deflation risk in the second half of the year. But I think the risk is real. That's extremely helpful. And so one thing that 
perhaps is is well understood, but I, I'm not as clear on that that might be helpful for our listeners is just thinking about these local government financing vehicles, kind of what, could you take us through what those are and, and sort of how they've played a role in the property sector issues that are ongoing? Yeah, sure. So local government financing vehicles actually started in the early 1990s. The reason they existed because in China, the fiscal regime between central and local government is very much imbalanced. Under the fiscal regime, the local governments are taking up a huge chunk of spending related to healthcare, infrastructure, or education. While at the same time, the fiscal revenue is very much centralized at the central government level. This situation has exacerbated over the past few years because the central government has been further centralizing a lot of the fiscal revenue. And because of COVID, a lot of healthcare-related spending had fallen on the local government's shoulder. At the same time, before 2015, the local governments were not allowed to issue unbudgeted debt. So in order for them to fill up this funding gap, they used this off-budget financing, which is the local government financing vehicle. How it worked is the local government would inject land into these corporates or local government financing vehicles. And LGIVs uh, will use this collateral to get loans from the banks. Then they develop the land, they develop the infrastructure, and hopefully they will bring in new industries and investment into this land, and it will generate cash flow from uh, this industrial park. Um, of course, this is a good hope. It worked out in some of the coastal provinces because their industrial base and economy is very strong, but it didn't work out for a lot of the inland provinces. So the end result is that you could see rapid development in coastal regions supported by these rapid infrastructure buildup. For a lot of inland provinces, you're stuck with all these uh, debt piles and you don't have sufficient cash flow to support your debt servicing over the next few years. So this becomes the local government financing debt issue or the hidden local government debt. What the central government did in 2015 is that they did one round of debt swap. Basically, they are they swap the high cost LGIV debt onto the on budget debt, which is a low cost local government debt, and they allow the local government at a provincial level to issue on budget debt. This has helped uh, quite a bit over those few years, but then over the past ten years, five to eight years, I think the local government continue to issue off budget debt, and the local government debt just keep growing because this funding gap has never really been addressed by the central government. Um, to some extent, I don't think this issue can be fully resolved until the central government is willing to give, give up some of the revenue sharing within this local government region and try to balance this um, current uh, revenue sharing and expenditure sharing. Um, there are some of the intermediary uh, solutions, such as asking the banks to extend um, the bridge funding for the local government financing vehicles, they're asking um, the local government financing vehicles to delay some of the trust loan payments, but this will not, uh, this is not going to resolve the issue in the end. I think another interesting to note is the central government's policy towards this sector has always been very counter-cyclical. So during that time, the central government will be focusing on supporting the liquidity of LGIV so they could build up more infrastructure and boost the economy. But during good times, the central government will be talking about debt cleaning up and then curbing the local government debt. So right now, we'll get a lot of investors asking about whether this sector is going to be another shoe to fall for the Chinese economy after property large-scale default. 
at this moment, we think it's no because the Chinese economy is not doing so well. The central government still needs a sector to support the economy. The issue is more over the medium to long term. Who is going to pay the bill of the hidden local government debt? Is it going to be the banks or the bondholders or the local government themselves? This question remains on our third of the past few years. It's a great summary and kind of interesting to highlight the risks of who ultimately foots the bill. And it's interesting to hear kind of the dichotomy of the effectiveness in the coastal provinces versus inland. And so to wrap up, I want to just kind of get your view on how clients are positioned and sort of how your discussions have gone and, and I, the general sentiment toward Chinese corporates and, and the economy and, and any other key takeaways that either surprised you from the Asia conference that we recently held or, or perhaps just key takeaways that didn't necessarily surprise you, kind of getting your holistic view from uh, the clients that you've talked to perspective. Yeah, sure. I think since the end of 2021, most of our clients have been very much on the way to China because of the huge losses they have incurred from the property dollar bond default. I think right now clients are balancing chasing yields versus potential loss they could incur from the China dollar bond investment. So I would say the risk sentiment towards the sector has still very been very much cautious, especially after the second or third quarter of the year when China COVID reopening has really disappointed the market. Um, but I think compared to the onshore investors that we have spoken with over the past 12 months, offshore investors tend to overreact. Um, when COVID reopening started in October last year, I think a lot of the investors rushed into the triple B-rated segment uh, for chasing yields, or even some went into the IOT industrial segment. Then later they got burned in after the data disappointed them, the market. I think nowadays people in the auction market also tend to react to a lot of the media reports that were stimulus measures without really looking into the possibility or the potential effectiveness of these uh, policy measures. I think throughout the conference, we have been telling investors um, where um, a lot of China credit bonds and investors, they should uh, not just listen to what the government is saying, but um, what the government is really doing in, in the real economy and uh, to pay more attention to follow through policies from the government. I think right now, given the market has been so much on the way to China, I think uh, it is worthwhile for investors thinking about imagine the potential upside risk in China and macro. And for a lot of the investors, they're still um, benchmark investors and if they massively on the way um, compared to the benchmark and whenever we see a China macro-related positive news or later if we see some policy follow-through, then they might massively underperform versus the benchmark. I think a lot of investors still want to avoid the China property sector, and there are many proxies within China uh, credit space that they could use to trade this uh, potential China macro upside. One sector we really like uh, remains China tech, especially the triple B-related segment. I think uh, they are quite expensive now compared to 2021 and early 2020. But for those investors doing carry, I think it's still quite attractive factor. The other sector for those brave hearts are the China high yield industrial. Some of the names are such as the metals and mining these ones. They're still uh, in a better credit profile, credit outlook compared to 2020 because of the past commodity upcycle and they had 
uh, manage to use this to deliver. So I think these non-property credits could be interesting play for those investors to hatch this China macro uh, potential upside. Well, I think that's an absolutely perfect summary to wrap it up here. Zerlina, thank you so much. This has been extremely helpful for me, and I know our clients are going to find this very helpful and informative. So again, Zerlina Zhang, our senior analyst covering China macro, thank you so much for taking the time today. And thank you all for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. Thanks. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.